Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Flogger Presents. Uh, I've got with me a very special guest, uh, all the way from New York. And I hope I get his name right. Uh, Justin Baruchy. You got it, man. Yay! Got it right. How are you doing? Very good. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, so although I've had my daughter's birthday today, I've been really excited about this one. I'm like a little child. Excellent, man. That's what keeps us young. It is, yeah, yeah. Got to be excited about the day. Yeah, yeah. In fact, thinking about thinking about the podcast that uh, actually inspired me to inspired me on a new on a film project, which I haven't done in a long time. So I can tell you about that a little bit later, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, I think we've been chatting for I don't know, maybe a couple of months now. Um, when I first came across, I think it was a post I did about a book I bought and it was the chemical pictures. Yes. Um, and that's when I come across your work and you was like, I learned everything from this book. And I was like, wow. Um, so it's sat on my sofa here somewhere. Um, yeah. I'm trying to find time to go through it alongst with a million other projects and uh, sort of things people keep throwing at me. Um, so I'm very, very excited about this. Um, give us a little uh, introduction about yourself, Justin. Um, how you started off in life, where you're from, this sort of thing. Uh, well, um, I'm a native New Yorker. Um, I live in Jersey now with my wife and, and family. Um, I discovered photography in high school, kind of fell in love with it. Like my, my idea in life at the time when I was a junior in high school was, was to be an artist, you know, pick up a paintbrush and somehow make a living from it. Um, but I took a photography class to fill a hole in my schedule and, and uh, fell in love with it. As soon as I developed my first role and was in the darkroom, I fell in love with photography. And, and at the time um, I switched it over and my, my major and I decided to be a, a photography major in art school instead of a painting major. Good thing I did that. I don't know what I would have done with, how I made a living at painting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how I made a living at photography either, but in any case, here I am. Uh, but at the time, I was very involved with uh, my local music scene in, in Staten Island, New York, where I grew up. Uh, a lot of, you know, punk rock and hardcore bands and stuff like that. Um, and just being involved with the, you know, with that scene, I started taking pictures of of my friend's bands playing. I had no musical talent, so mm -hmm. I just wanted to contribute and be useful. So uh, I was taking pictures and, and I never stopped, uh, kept shooting music, you know, and uh, made a living from it. And um, all the while always, you know, wanted to, you know, like uh, wanted to be out on the street taking pictures, doing street photography. That's uh -huh. really where I got my started. When I first started shooting, I was side by side. I was, you know, in the clubs shooting bands and in the daytime walking around with my cameras, taking pictures in the street uh -huh. um, as the music shifted to a professional career, did less and less of the street photography mm. um, to the point where I probably basically stopped. Um, and yeah. at some point in time, um, well, yeah, I guess about 10 years ago, I got married and I moved out of the city uh, to New Jersey. And through living in New Jersey, I kind of, you know, I had a hard time missing New York because I never... Mm been out of the city my entire life so i had like this weird identity thing it was like ah, oh, i'm in new jersey i'm a new yorker <laughs> blah, 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 blah. it was it was you know just this thing and, and and i was like you know what 
I, I should get back into doing street photography and and um, and to take it with a fresh for me a fresh approach, uh, different uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it would be a great idea to learn how to shoot tintypes and make a giant dark room and roll around the city, not realizing how difficult it would be. Mm-hmm. So that's what prompted me to um, to get into wet plate collodion process was to thinking I would, I would simply be able to just grab a large format camera and a little dark room and run around taking a million pictures. But at the time, I didn't know what was involved with the process. I didn't have mm-hmm. Quinn Jacobson's book yet. I haven't done any background. I was like, I'm just going <laughs> to do it and, and figure it out. But, yeah. uh, you know, once, nice once I got into it, I, I realized like, wow, this is a lot. You know, it takes a lot of work, you know, and I'm, you know, it was a real commitment. So that's me in a nutshell of, of where I am today. Wow. So music's obviously a, a really cool thing. Um, so you just sat there, listened and shot, shot it all the time or was you there to support friends? Um, when I started shooting music, is that what you mean? Mm. Yeah, I um, I was, you know, like I said, I was involved with the local music scene. You know, my friends were in bands, you know, and uh, started taking pictures and they would use them on their record covers and, you know, touring bands would come through and I would meet those guys and those would go on record labels, uh, record covers. Sooner or later, one of these bands got picked up by a major label and I get paid by a major label. You know, oh. it's just like a slow progression from you know, like um, working for like fanzines, which were, you know, self-published magazines yep. uh, before, you know, websites and before the internet, really. I mean, the internet was in its infancy and in then in this is through the 90s, really. Uh, and then, you know, sooner or later, I would get some magazine work and, you know, and, and as we all grew up, essentially, you know, everyone stayed in the, in the music industry in some capacity. So the people... I was, a, you know, when, when we were teenagers, we were making our own music and our own art and our own, you know, we put out our own records. And then, you know, everyone kind of like just kind of climbed up the ladder mm. and, you know, and kind of went went on from there. Okay. That answers your question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so is music like a really big, important thing to you even now? Yeah, it is. It is. It always, it always has. And I'm kind of like in, in, uh, in a little bit of a, uh, a stalemate with my relationship with music. You know, someone asked me when was the last show I've been to, I haven't been to a, a concert or a show without being paid in God knows how long. It's like, if, if, if I'm not getting paid to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'd rather be at home on the couch with my family or doing mm-hmm. something like that. So, um, I kind of need to reestablish my relationship with music so I can enjoy it again. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how I reestablish my relationship with photography with the wet plate collodion so I can enjoy it and do it for me and not not do it for a check or for somebody else. Yeah. So so I need to yeah. Oh, that's cool. So obviously you start you started in film. Did you know yes. about wet plate back then? No, I mean I knew what a tintype was, but did okay. You know, didn't uh, didn't know about know about uh, wet plate clothing and the whole process. And in fact, the the actual story about how I discovered the process 
I was at a, a Renaissance fair with my wife, and there was a guy dressed up as a pirate doing <laughs> it. And I kind of walked by and looked at it sideways and circled around his tent without getting any closer than 10 feet. I really like looked at it from far away. I was kind of like intimidated and weirded out by it Pirate. basically because I, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't understand. I was like, all right, he's making tin types, but you yeah. need a dark room. I didn't know you needed a dark room. I didn't know that I had no idea about yeah, why would you like, know? Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't know. And, and that's when, I went home and Googled it and this is 10 years ago. So the, the <laughs> you know, like it kind of exploded since then. Yeah. And I'm like, Whoa, this is nuts. Like, this is crazy. I can't believe all like, like this is all, all this work is, has to go into making these images like that. Mm. And it bounced around in my head for the next, like, you know, four or five years. And, and at that point, that's when I felt like I wanted to reconnect with shooting, shooting in the street and doing street photography. And I had the bright idea of, well, I'm going to learn how to make tintypes and then do that in the street. And so it took about five years until I finally said, screw it, I'm going to do it. And that's that's when I dove into it. And uh, the first thing I did was I picked up Quinn Jacobson's book, Chemical Pictures. And he's a, he's a great educator. He, jeez, uh, oh, I think he's in – he moved around a lot in the past couple of years, but he does workshops. Where I think – I want to say he's in Colorado, but I could be completely mistaken where he is right now. But um, – okay. But uh, yeah, his book is great. It's um, it, it breaks things down to you know simplest terms, and it's just very easy to you know. I mean, I, I successfully learned how to shoot tin types just by reading his book and watching some of his videos online. That's not to say one can't benefit from a workshop because mm. uh, over the years of me doing it, I've definitely learned a lot from other wet platers being right there. Right. Like when you develop a plate, there's a, a technique that's really hard to pick up uh, from watching a video or reading mm -hmm. about the way way you develop you pour a plate. You have to kind of like really sweep uh, a little bottle of, of developer over your plate so it flows over it evenly. So that's something that I didn't pick up on just you know from reading and watching videos. So okay. so it, it, you, you can definitely benefit from 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 a workshop. So you know, but yeah, or read a book and you know. <laughs> try it yourself yeah you know to see if you like it before you spend all the money on a a workshop <clears throat> yeah no no that's cool so let's talk about wet play then so do you want to explain to our listeners what exactly it is because um obviously we've got digital listeners out there as well as analog and if you've never been anywhere near the books me and you have you've never even seen it or heard of it would you yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, a lot of it seems like a lot of it. Uh, I think there's a more of awareness of wet plate clothing now. I got a lot more people, a lot of photographers I talk to know exactly what it is I do. And then a lot of them have even taken workshops themselves. <laughs> like, not to get sidetracked, I, I also spend a lot of time out in Manhattan on the street mm -hmm. doing a, a pop up photo studio, yeah. which you're aware of. Yeah. And. And surprising, I'm so surprised about the amount of people that I meet on the street every day that have tried it in school or in a class. Mm -hmm. I would say every day I talk to about two or three people that have have at least done it. It's wow. I'm so surprised. There's a lot of people 
coming through that know what it is and have, have actually tried it. Now, what the process is, the process is called wet plate collodion. And what that means is, is um, okay, let me restart that. The process is called wet plate collodion. And, and with the process, you could do a few different things. So you could okay. make a, a tintype, which is an image made on black lacquered aluminum, or you can make an amber type, which is an image made on glass, and you would take that piece of glass and put it against like a black surface, and then you have a positive image. Or you can make a, a collodion negative, which um, then you could go ahead and make prints, historical prints, you know, from the contact printing and, and stuff like that, which I actually have no experience with. Uh, but I usually make amber types and tin types. Um, and, and the process is called wet plate because the process has to happen while the plate is still wet. So you have to, when I set up the camera, I have to have a dark room and I prepare the, <laughs> prepare the, the plate right there in the dark room, load it into a plate holder, which is a converted modern film holder, shoot it, then go back in the dark room and develop it. And that all has to happen arguably within five to 10 minutes because as the plate starts to dry out it'll lose its sensitivity and mm -hmm. it just either won't come out at all or like kind of be really splotchy and look terrible okay. i know some people that have made uh long nighttime exposures um like 10 minute exposures i'm like well how did you manage to you know keep your plate wet that long and it's like i guess sometimes if there's a the right humidity you can manage to get longer exposures but but um but yeah, that's why it's called wet plate. You have to have each one is made one at a time in, in a dark room. Yeah, that's really, really different. It's something I've thought about because I've tried Jason Blaine's uh, dry plates mm -hmm. literally just like a couple of weeks ago, but I haven't developed them yet. I'm still a bit nervous um, about how to do it. And obviously the temperature over here is not quite as nice as over there. Mm -hmm. Well, shooting the dry plates, the temperature shouldn't. It shouldn't uh, affect no, you. It's developing into it. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't, I haven't tried uh, the dry plates. I believe they would be developed the same way um, as the wet plates. So, did you? Did he tell you like you have to uh, develop it in a tray or pour? pour yeah, uh, I think if you haven't got any equipment, do it in a tray. But it has to be mm -hmm. twenty degrees. Mm -hmm. Now it's sort of spring here. So it's been between three degrees and ten degrees. So I've got to try and find a way of keeping that sort of temperature constant. Mm -hmm. um, um, which is my well, I'm trying to think what what's the uh, Celsius versus Fahrenheit. Uh, okay, um, yeah. um, it's nearly three times, isn't it? Oh. So, uh, so about 60 degrees. So you said 20 degrees. Yeah, 20 Celsius. degrees. Yeah. Okay. So it's got to be a little bit. Okay. Well, um, I mean, what, what, how come you couldn't just, you know, get your developer? Well, you were trying to get your developer to that temperature. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, well, you get um, a larger, a larger uh, container, um, like, like a, a pot of water you get that to the right temperature that you want it and then you can put your developer in a smaller temperature and let it come you know let it uh equilibrate you know equalize it has take to some be, time that hole needs to be in the dark though doesn't it 
No, that could be done in. Uh, well, all right. I'm, I can't speak for the dry plate, but when I do my wet plate, it happens under red light, safe light. No, that has. I'm a, yeah, yeah, that's red light as well. Yes. Yeah. I'm assuming it would be the same, but I'm it not is, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when I when I develop in my dark room, I have a, a little red light, a little like a little, little headlamp that I just have taped up on, on the wall, yeah. and you could. You could do it, you know, all unlike film, you could actually see what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, the, the only difference for me is so when I do developing uh, negatives, um, mm -hmm. I can do that in the kitchen. So it's moderately warmer. Um, but for doing printing, I have to go in an outbuilding, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so it is damn cold. Mm -hmm. It's like winter, it is ridiculous i have to go in there and jack it with gloves uh, mm -hmm. heat, a heater on um and i use a food uh what do you call them um a food tray here you know like in chinese mm -hmm. restaurants yeah. yeah yeah oh and like a little little heater underneath it's it, just a flat probably. just a flat heater yeah. and you just bung the trays on top that's smart that's smart yeah, yeah it's cheapest thing i could find um yeah but i have no water in my dark room you see yeah, it's literally just a room, so I have to carry water in and out. Yeah, well, again, so I do it in a cart, so yeah, I'm bringing probably, water yeah. around me also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, yours is yeah. much tougher, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you take your water with you, or do you get it while you're out on the street? Uh, I take it with me. Um, there's a couple of things you can do when when I'm when I'm shooting portraits in the street. I usually bring about. Uh, I I usually use about like. Um, three three to four gallons a day and i just have these they're called water bricks i just started using them they're great and they they you know i used to have like a large like uh home depot bucket with a cooler it was had five gallons it was massive and it would always spill but i got these these are the water bricks which are designed for storing water you know in your house but in any case um i set up a table and i put out a string of uh of trays and um and I, I rinse my uh, my plates through the trays to clean them. I also use, you know, there's different methods to fixing uh, your plates. And, and I guess I should have uh, prepared because I'm using a new a new fixer that I haven't used prepare before. And I forget exactly what it is, uh, but it requires uh, less washing time than a modern fixer would. Because a uh, modern fixer, yeah. like when you're in your dark room, you need to wash a print for like 20 minutes, basically. Do, yeah. um, the historical method for shooting wet plates would be um, would be using KCN, which is a cyanide, which is cyanide, oh, um, yeah. which is which is hard for people to get a hold of. And I I ran out of my supply uh, this past year, and with the one of the great things about using the cyanide fixer is it, it dissolves and washes very quickly. Right. And you can just run it through a series of trays and you just kind of like rinse them off, you know, move into the next tray. And, and through that cycle, it's clean at the end and it's archival. So, um, so uh, a friend of mine mentioned a solution. Let me try to... Um, Maybe we just put it in a note, and so I don't yeah. want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. But in any case, I did a test, and um, and I, I was able to, you know, wash it in the field, and it washes the same way as the KCN does. So, so when I'm doing my portraits on the street, 
that's the way I wash my wash my plates. Um, or alternatively, what you could do is you could shoot your plates, and then you could get a special uh, rack that fits in an ammunition can, and you could fill it with water, and you could keep your plates in in a tank, and you just close it up, and you bring it home, and you can wash them at home also. Mm-hmm. So you could just keep them wet until you get back to your bathroom or a garden hose or wherever and you can wash them that way if you wanted to there's a lot of different there's a lot of different things the one one of the fun things and one of the things i love about wet plate collodion is that you got to be inventive and there's you know you could just do a lot of rigging and coming up with different things and building different things to and, and as you meet other Clodian photographers everyone has different methods and you're like oh wait why do you do it that way oh that works also you know and like everyone mm-hmm. kind of like comes up with their own little solutions for these for these problems and there's a lot of information online as well but really when it comes down to it like as you work you kind of develop your own practice so it seems that a lot of I, I look at it as like I have a collodion practice and <laughs> and it's just the way I do things. So if I'm teaching something somebody to, to somebody, I'm like, look, this is the way I do it and it works for me. It doesn't mean it will work for you. And it doesn't mean if you tell another collodion photographer this is the way I do it, they might look at me sideways like, what the hell is he doing? You know, it you know, it just it just works for me and that's that's the way I do it, you know. So so that's that's the interesting thing is you get to see how how uh, other things you know, how people do things. And, you know, I mean, for instance, case in point, I have another friend um, uh, who suggested a, uh, a developer recipe for me. Mm-hmm. And it just, and, and, it, and he swore by it. And I'm sure it works for him, but it just wouldn't work for me. I, I couldn't <laughs> make my adjustments um, in the summertime. Like it just wasn't working for me. Like mm-hmm. you're supposed to, you should be able to add different amounts of water, alcohol, or acid to adjust for um, the higher temperatures. Uh, but it's just, I just kept struggling with it. And this summer I'm trying, I'm going to try different develop a recipe just because I was done struggling with it last year and it just, right. just was not working out for me. So something might work for somebody, but not for somebody else. So yeah, again, yeah. you, know, you just got to, got to find your way and, you know, figure it, figure <laughs> it out. That's really weird. But I think a lot of analog photography is like this. Um, you talk to people about developing, how they do it, um, printing, and everyone's got unique things at home they use. And um, I was talking to someone, um, I don't know if you've seen his website, uh, Emulsive. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, he knows everybody. And um, we were talking about the cheap and basic ways I do stuff. And he's like, dude, we've got to come up with um, uh, like an introductory guide, how to do uh, large format, how to do printing. Um, but like, on a, um, do, you, do you say the word frugal in America? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a frugal guide. And um, he said, let's get it going. Because he's got, there's a picture of me, um, first time I shot my large format. And I've just used my um, hoodie as a, that jacket or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not buying anything. Why should I? Oh, I'm right there with you. I had yeah. a, I had a, um, a flannel that I used when yeah. I first was shooting wet plate. Here's another being frugal. You could start wet plate. My first dark, my dark room that I was rolling around was a cardboard box with a, a trash bag to keep the box from 
uh, getting soaked on the bottom. Oh yeah. And and you know you just like you have a shroud that you put over. So you tape up that cardboard box so it's light tight and you know. And I used it, and then I fell in love with it. That's when I started building my you know my darkroom rig and kind of designed it the way I wanted to do it. So yeah, like you know, and I also borrowed equipment like. I've had four by five. This is, you know, when I started doing this, I had four by five cameras, like loads of, of large format equipment that I've sold years ago because I thought I would never touch it again. Right. So here I am wanting to shoot tintype, kicking myself in the butt for selling off all this equipment. <laughs> so I was like, I, I can't believe I had to buy new equipment. So I borrowed a friend's four by five camera and I borrowed someone's else's lenses. And, you know, I kind of hacked this whole thing together, fell in love with it. That's when I, once I fell in love with it, then I was like, okay, well now I'm going to get what I want. And I slowly started pulling my equipment together. So yeah, starting off, you know, just, just get what you can get your hands on. And then, you know, before you, you know, like you don't need to spend loads and loads of money because the chemicals are expensive enough. So yeah, man, you know, just. That's cool. So talk us through how we get involved and um, basic equipment uh, and some rough costs. Okay. So if you came to me and said, Hey, I want to start shooting wet plate. And I, I would tell you, Probably I would tell you to just get the chemical pictures books for starters, okay? Uh, and then pick up a chemical kit. And this is important. Now, I can't say what's available uh, in the UK, but in the US, and I don't think they could ship to the UK, but no, in the okay. US, there's a, a few different uh, suppliers. There's UV Photographics, which is in Los Angeles. There's Bostic and Sullivan, which is in New Mexico. Those are the two places where I get most of my chemicals. Now, Bostic and Sullivan, they have a chemical kit, a wet plate kit with pre-mixed chemicals. Um, and I think it costs uh, about three or $400 or between three or $400. And you, I bought the kit and I also had to buy, well, I guess you don't have to buy it, but a silver tank. Uh, I guess I'll get into the step-by-step in a minute. So that... Yeah cost me another 175 but you can get it cheap you could get cheaper versions you could get them for under 100 bucks but i knew that's something that i wanted because it was called a travel tank it would have less spillage because i knew i'd be running around like an idiot doing this stuff um so i would say if you lived in the states you could get started with the chemicals and the basic equipment for under 400 dollars if you don't spend money on a camera, you could convert a Holga. You could convert a 35 millimeter camera. You could use a cardboard box, you know, a pinhole. You don't need to, to spend, you don't, you can do it with any kind of camera you want. You okay. just have to have the chemicals. And I would say get a chemical kit because there's so much that can go wrong in the process in the dark room. And, and um, there's so much that can go wrong. And, and really when you're learning how to shoot wet plate, what you're doing is you're learning how to make all the mistakes and recognize what mistakes and what's going wrong <laughs> to, to make it work. So when your chemicals are pre-mixed, you know that's a ver- – you you're cutting out a variable. Yeah, yeah, it's a good okay. idea. Hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, it's so imperative not to make mistakes with the chemicals because then you don't know where – you can know how to fix your mistakes. Yeah. You don't know if it's happening in the dark room or if it happened when you were mixing your chemicals. Yeah. So – so and then 
use all those chemicals and and, and keep buying pre-mixed chemicals until your game is tight and mm-hmm. then start mixing the chemicals because then you can start uh, screwing up the chemicals yeah so that's that's my advice to someone who wants to wants to shoot wet plate and of course take a class you know um and some people it might be cheaper to take a class or a workshop without having to buy the stuff themselves because you know you might take a class and discover ah, i don't really like doing this you know yeah you know because that it might be cheaper than spending the four or five hundred bucks on the chemicals and discover ah, i don't really like doing this so you know we can figure out what's what's available to me i fell in love with it the second i developed my first plate i felt like i was a teenager again in high school in that dark room like i completely fell madly in love with the process um so the process the the first step of the process is preparing your plate is it okay try to get into this yeah yeah that's fine go for it yeah uh the first step of the process is preparing a plate you pour collodion uh onto a plate i'm gonna go to the camera here i guess i could have bought some props but you take a (laughs) plate and you kind of put it on your fingers and you pour the plate the Collodion onto the plate, and then you just kind of flow it around, and you drain it off into uh, yeah. back Same into the that. bottle, yeah. and then and then from there, the plate goes into a silver tank, and that silver tank uh, basically protects your most expensive chemical. The silver nitrate is is pretty expensive. Usually, you're working with uh, you know anywhere between like a hundred two hundred dollars worth of silver, depending on how big your plates are, mm-hmm. um, and um, and I purchased a better tank because I knew I wanted to be able to close it and 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 latch it so I can move it around. Hmm, um, you can get a cheaper tank that doesn't have a top on it. You know, like it's just basically like a plastic thing and you could build like a little wooden frame around it to make it light tight. So you could really um, uh, be frugal about it if you wanted to. Hmm. Um, you could even put it in a, into a tray, but that's you this point you want it you would have to be in a hundred percent black environment because the tank is light tight uh and the problem with putting into a tray which only costs you know a couple of bucks is is your silver is now very vulnerable for airborne materials other chemicals other contaminants that's why you want that tank so it sensitizes in your tank for about two minutes or three minutes depending on who you are because everyone does everything a little bit differently and you loaded it into a film holder uh which is a which i have a modern film holder with a hole cut out and you know and or you could purchase one that's made by you know any wet plate supplier out there mm-hmm. um and then i load in the camera shoot it go back into the dark room and develop it um and, and it stops with water and then uh, the cool thing is, is you could you could fix it in the daylight. So it's a little bit of a wow factor. So after I develop it and stop it, I take it out of the dark room. I put it in tray in, in front of you know whoever I'm photographing, right. and you, you and then it clears through. So it's like this milky substance. All the unexposed silver is still on it, and then it just kind of like clears through. And it's like, wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, and <laughs> that's every single time I put a plate in, I, I still feel that little rush. That's cool. So yeah, I definitely um, would tell people it's a, a fun process, and you kind of want to fall in love with it because it you, it's um, it requires a lot of work. If you don't love it, it will drive you crazy. Um, hmm. 
um, just because there's a lot of maintenance involved also, just making sure the chemicals are kept, kept in good condition. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of trouble, troubleshooting. You have to do a lot of things wrong before you, you can correct problems as they occur in the field. So that sounds know, like definitely something you want to love. <laughs> that sounds like analog photography full stop. Yeah, yeah. You make a lot of mistakes and then you learn a little bit. Yeah. And it's the same with printing as well, isn't it? it it's a similar process in a sense. Um, yeah. Chemical. Um, however, form. yeah, chemical wise, it is very similar to to printing and, and developing film. However, um, I would describe. I would describe the wet plate process as almost as like a living animal. Cause if, <laughs> if you don't take care of it, it will die and it'll be mad at you and mm. it'll be grumpy. Um, so it, it's, that's why I call it a pro, uh, a practice. So yeah, you, you kind of right. have to always be in it, um, to keep it alive. Um, and also I find that if I don't shoot, um, for a while, which, which doesn't happen to you know if i don't chew wet plate for a while like you, you it's almost like an instrument like you have you get a little rusty and you have to kind of like mm -hmm. fine-tune your method again but um yeah i know i talk a lot man i don't know oh no 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to be passionate so did you um love like the victorian side of it then is that um, part of it or just for me product just the product oh uh, well for me um it's not so much it's not i mean i i like history and and i'm the first to admit i don't know a lot about the victorian history of the process for me it's it's more of a uh, of just that a process for something that that produces something beautiful to me so yes right. yep yep uh you know i don't i i, I don't collect tin types i'm not you know like uh I don't have like favorite tintype shooters from from the 19th century. Like yeah. that's not me. For me, it was more like more of, of a medium like that. I was like, wow, this is beautiful, and I want to I want to do this. That's that's what it, that's what it was for me. And so it's the I love the shooting portion of it. I love the process. I love the end result, and I love you know the handmade aspect of it. For me, it's mm. also important. Um, um, I love building stuff. I love building the dark rooms. I love problem solving that building a better dark room. Mm -hmm. And then like I have a wagon with all this different crap that makes it easier and little cubby holes for my water. Like, like I love all of that. Um, and another thing that was actually very not me was shooting on a tripod, which obviously you have to. Mm -hmm. So like you, you, you would, I would, you would almost have to force me to shoot on a tripod. Like if I had to shoot on a tripod, like I, you, you can't, you know, like you would never see me voluntarily shoot on a tripod yeah. unless I had to get a long exposure or motion blur or some for an assignment. Like, but on my own, like that is just not, it's just not me. So it was really strange for me to dive into this process, knowing that I'd be married to a tripod. And, um, and it was interesting to re to recondition myself to work that way. Yeah, to go uh, slower. To go slower, and and it, it actually took some time, and to the to the point where it's like 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 if you in it long enough, like I used to spend like I used to go out and f try to do like a street landscape. I used to spend like 
two hours trying to find the shot. Now it's like, I don't even take the camera out. I just kind of walk around like, like a jerk, you know, like one of those assholes, you know, <laughs> like this finding it. And then, and it's, it's exactly the way I would want it. Like, like you kind of get in tune with what the, the camera sees and what your lens sees. And then you just go right in there and set it up and, and be pretty much ready to go. Cause you, you're just so used to what the camera sees and you just get in there and, and find it, you know? <laughs> uh, that's cool. Yeah. I think it's something that you just sort of learn. I think when I first started analog, it was only like two years ago and I just got sucked into it. And now like, it's the only thing I talk about with my friends. I don't talk about digital, but I do love my digital images. Um, I do love what, what I can get out of it, but I still use old technology and I love these constraints. So I would rather have a, I've got a 13-year-old digital camera mm -hmm. that I have to work hard for. Um, but I think it gives me that edge over, you know, um, any other photographer. Um, because, you know, uh, it's not going to be good at high, high ISO. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much grain in it. Um, but it's it's a really good camera, to be fair. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I work in Linux uh, as far as some computers are concerned, so I don't have access to Lightroom and stuff like this. So I'm editing with free software. You can't use presets. I don't get lens corrections. It's you know, it, it's literally you know, you're learning everything from scratch, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. Um, let me uh, talk to me a little bit about the sort of technical side of then of um, shooting as well with this because mm. I understand you need a lot of light. Is that true? Yes, it is. It is. Ah, okay. The process is only sensitive to the <clears throat> ultraviolet spectrum of light. Oh, I didn't know so, that. Yeah. So what is tricky about that is is you that's an you have to build your own intuition on exposure um there's wow. no light meter that can measure uv so i'll give you a quick example of of why it's a pain in the ass to deal with ultraviolet light um or I'll, actually first i'll give you a quick example of what an exposure could be at noon uh you could set uh, you're, you know, on a large, typical large format fast lens would be 5.6 or f4 or 5. Usually they're 5.6. So say if you open wide open at 5.6 uh, on an open sunny day, you know, you could have an exposure between one and three seconds, depending on how much UV is out there. That's pretty long considering you're wide open and you're, you know, out in the sun. Uh, overcast, you know, your exposure could be anywhere between two and, and eight seconds long, wide open, depending on how much uh, UV is out there. Mm -hmm. um, if you're shooting uh, towards the end of the day when the sun's low in the sky, um, so um, this is this is the sun, you know, and here's your horizon. So, <laughs> so, <I'm gonna> <laughs> um, so as the sun gets lower in the sky, you're it, it, the the sun is is filtering through a lot more atmosphere, uh -huh. so that atmosphere filters out the UV. Uh, so okay. you lose as the sun gets lower, you lose lose your exposure. I've I've been set the first time I've encountered this. I was set up doing a street shot, and 
and the sun was getting lower and I did a plate and, um, and I, you know, I, I knew I needed to in, increase my, I needed to double my exposure. I knew where I was. Mm-hmm. I got close. Usually I do a couple plates before I nail it, right? Or get close to nailing it. Like I'm going to do some text plates to make sure your exposure is good because you can't just take a meter reading. So, so you go on your intuition, you make an exposure, then you go, okay, I need to close down or open up or add or increase time. Usually I keep the uh, aperture consistent because I want, you know, control of my depth of field. So yeah. say if I have an exposure of say 15 seconds, I'm like, okay, I'm going to add another 10 seconds. Okay, beautiful. I got my shot and like the exposure is good. Now I want to make a you know, uh, a composition change. I want to shoot another plate. And as that sun gets lower in the sky, the UV can drop off drastically. Like, um, like for instance, if you do use your light meter, which I do kind of use my light meter to, to keep track of how much cloud coverage there is. Hmm. Um, so I could kind of get an idea of how much UV is dropping off. So if I lose a half a stop, I know my UV is going pretty is also going to drop as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, but as the sun gets lower in the sky, that the the it just that that has a lot more atmosphere to trans. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. How yeah. Explain it. Yeah. So that atmosphere like filters out that UV, so your exposure could suddenly drop off two to three stops. And the first time I accounted this, I didn't understand why, because I was still taking meter readings. I'm like, okay, I lost maybe a half a stop of ambient light. How am I losing like three stops on my actual plate? And it it just occurred to me that I'm like, oh, that's what it is. Because it occurred to me more when that sun dropped behind the building and I just couldn't manage to get the exposure back. Because every time I would go into the dark, it takes like, you know, like four or five minutes to make it to do the whole plate, like prepare the plate, shoot the plate, go back in the dark room. So between plates, it would take f- four or five minutes. And as that sun was lowering, I couldn't find the right exposure because it kept changing so drastically. Wow. So a rule of thumb was I usually tried to avoid shooting when the sun's low in the sky like that because it could just, if you, you know, it just could uh, uh, be difficult to get the shot why do it to yourself yeah yeah why do it to yourself if you could just get there earlier in a day you know yeah so does that mean sorry that might have been a little bit long (laughs) that's cool does that mean it's going to be different depending where you are in the world then yes it, it will i mean it could yeah definitely um wow i mean it's just yeah i mean it could be different I mean, it could be different anywhere. Uh, if you're shooting next to a building with a white wall, that will give you more reflective light down onto the street versus an open field or, you know, I mean, that's the same with, you know, the like exposure is always different, you know, yeah, wherever you go. But, um, but yeah, like if you're, you know, in England, you have a lot of overcast, you can have a lot less UV coming through. Yeah. So your exposures might be longer out the gate you know that would be an interesting one to compare to say yeah i've heard i've heard a lot of things you know like uh some, some uk photographers griping like oh the winter time is so hard to shoot you know mm. this is not a lot of light you know but you know you can um and also do you ever work with strobe equipment at all yeah all the time all right so to give you an example if i'm shooting in the studio i'm shooting with strobe strobe equipment and um mm again wide open aperture um and i 
have um, you know uh, several different strobe units, but I'll use my Profoto 7Bs for an example. They're tw- they're a 1200 watt second pack, and um, I have the Magnum reflector, which is like maybe like a 12 inch, maybe 11 inch reflector. It's designed to really push out a lot of extra light, so I get an extra couple of stops from that. So I'll position that light very close to the subject's face, like maybe 23 or maybe 24 inches from the face and that's at full power and that's getting my exposure at at 5.6 so every time i pop that off someone's like whoa that's a lot of light (laughs) so yeah because they're not designed to give out ultraviolet light it's just a small amount of light coming out of there which is is uh is able to be recorded on with the the clodian plate so do you prefer doing the studio then because you've got a bit more say consistency and control? Oh. E, well, it really depends. I mean, if you if you look at my No, I don't prefer the studio. I think it's it's really for me it's it's what serves what I'm looking to get the best. Like if I'm going to take your portrait, I would probably say, "Hey, let's go shoot in a studio for a studio portrait but then again i might want to shoot it outdoors it's really what just whatever i want to do um um i mean like there's so many different aspects to what i'm trying to do like if i'm just working on my street project Hmm. i want to be out in the street just you know just doing that if i'm doing a portrait yeah i'd probably gravitate towards doing um a studio session because there is the more more control um but however you get it's a you get very different results from shooting indoors outdoors available light in you know in an environment um i don't know if that answers your question or not Uh, what's it um what's it like for the person though because like you said say six to eight seconds how do you actually sit there straight without moving well when you're using strobe the exposure is instant Ah, okay. Is that flash is, yeah. is is what's recording. Now the subject does have to hold still because the depth of field is very shallow. Yeah. So if I focus on you with with a large format camera at five point six and I focus on your eyes, if you move just a little bit, your tip of your nose is gonna be in focus and your eyeballs aren't. So <laughs> you do have to hold still to maintain focus. Uh so yeah, even though the exposure is consistent or instant you still have to hold still um but yeah i mean if people are using available light for an exposure or constant light net everyone has access to strobe lights so a lot of people use the compact flash and bulb lighting arrays i don't know if you've seen them before they usually have like eight of those oil bulbs quinn jacobson using yeah, yeah, those those you could depending on on what your setup is, you could have an exposure between four and twelve seconds. I I, I always had this strobe equipment because I've been, you know, it's what I use when I do my my music portraits and stuff like that. So um, I never had to like you know like they're expensive to own. So you mm-hmm. know if you don't have the you know if you don't want to spend thousands of dollars, you could spend mm-hmm. hundreds of dollars, you know, and and make a long exposure. And what you could do is you could set up like little you know different ways to brace the back of your head so you get your 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 portrait set up and then i would come up behind a person and like put like a little bit of a 
of a brace in the back. I'm like, okay, uh-huh. just keep your head there. So you could, it doesn't have to necessarily hold your head, yeah. but like just, yeah. if you just maintain that relationship with what you feeling in the, in the nape of your neck, then I know you're not moving. Uh, okay. That's you a good idea. Saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do do that sometimes. Like if I'm working with someone who happens to be a little bit too jittery, you yeah. know, but for the most part, when I'm doing my portraits, they could just kind of hang tight and then I'll be able to maintain the exposure. But that also helps. Like if you have like some like the, you know, in Victorian days, they would have like these little like cups that would kind of like go not cups, but like a, like a ring that would like kind of nestle in the back of your neck to kind of help you keep steady. So you could, mm-hmm. you could make those or find them in an antique shop if you wanted to. So, so, so if that's, tell that's a so Justin's tip is to tie your subjects down. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Hit him with a stick. <laughs> yeah. Knock him out. Knock him out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Keep still. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had any um, funny people on the street then, where they've been moving about too much and you've had giggles and laughs about it? Or, uh, well, um, when I when I are you talking about in portrait sessions or They're just like your street project? Uh, yeah, actually, usually when I do the street project, uh, I'm fine with with motion because uh, it's like I like that. Um, it, it, I like the organic nature of of the blur, and and what I, well, often will all I'll do is I won't tell someone like all right when I when I set up a street shot, okay. Usually, what happens is I'll I'll, I'll find something I want to shoot, find a composition, start setting it up, and um, and often. I want more depth of field because I want the detail of the buildings. I want to see the, the detail because the detail is amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'll stop down and my exposure will, will be anywhere between 45 seconds to a minute and a half, depending again on the UV and how much depth of field I want. So typically I can make an exposure and the street will be empty except like, you know, you'll see these ghosts. Like if, if there's a lot of people walking. So, as I'm setting this up almost every single time, someone's going to stop and be like, what are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And that's when I kind of like, okay, well now you're going to be a, a piece in my composition. So I kind of treat it as a landscape. I'm like, you mm-hmm. can stand over there for me. And so it's a little bit of an interactive way of working. And I'm like, okay, it's going to be a minute long exposure, but sometimes I'll, you know, not necessarily tell them to hold still just because I would like the, that little bit of a, you know, life of them moving a little bit you know and just kind of lets it breathe and and lets it exist so um yeah i i I encourage i encourage them not standing still just because it uh, i like the aesthetics of of uh, the motion that's good because it's it's not a studio it's real life isn't it yeah and i think that's what um hooks a lot of the street photographers into it Oh, sorry. You're not going for beauty, fashion. It's whatever's on the street. It's real. You're capturing a second of history. Mm. Um, you're getting personality. You're getting fashion, religion, sex, age. I mean, there's so much you can get from street photography in there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What Did you start just doing like street portraiture then? Or was you doing candid before as well? Or... Well, we'll just we'll break it down like for the sake of someone coming into this podcast and not having any idea of what I do, um, I would I would 
basically break it down into two different two different bodies of work, um, kind of completely separate. The street photography, which is what I would consider like you know my personal work, like just something I do because I want to do, like you know fine art photography or whatever. Uh, and the portraiture work is what I do for a profession. Um, obviously it's you know how i make my money and it was just kind of a national a national excuse me a natural progression for me to start taking portraits of people because my clients are like oh you do let's do my plate portraits so i started doing it that way mm. and it slowly branched into working with private clients and then and then uh you know just just out of curiosity i set up a pop-up studio and started doing portraits on the street and selling portraits and it was became very successful and uh an easy you know way to bring in some extra income with a large family uh, uh between spare time so that that is just you know something i enjoy doing and you know just like a little bit of an extra like a side hustle essentially i think i'm losing track of what your question was what was your question <laughs> um so did you ever do candid as well, well yeah well yes uh, at times when oh uh with wet plate with, with either yes yes uh i i would say when i was First starting out in photography, my street shooting was completely stealth, like, you know, mm -hmm. candid, you know, just, you know, like what you would think of when you would think of street photography. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I have a place online where that body of work exists, but I think I do have a ebook, which is a free download I could I could maybe get you get you some links for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's, yes, yes. Candid, like traditional street. Robert Frank's like he was my biggest influence when I was a young man. Huh? Like Robert Frank and Louis Stettner. Like, like that's that's what I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to do is travel the world and just shoot on subways. I love shooting on subways, shooting on the streets, shooting in the city, and then and then as I kind of kept moving through the photo world is when I started getting money from the musicians. And, and huh? that's kind of like, like I just started getting paid to do the music and that's where my focus went yeah, yeah. And to the point where, you know, that's, that's kind of like, I never really said, I don't want to shoot street photography anymore. It just kind of like went by the wayside because I didn't have time for myself. And, and the wet plate was like, I need time for myself. And that's when I fell in love with the photography again. And that's uh, obviously a slower hobby anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that takes time. Um, do you have like a plan for the future with either jobs? Just keep it on, keep it on. Um, okay. Yeah, like I... Um... Are you thinking yeah. of like books, courses or teaching yourself yeah. even? Yeah, I've I've hosted a few workshops here and there. Sometimes people ask me about it. Um, mm. But yeah, I just basically my thing is I just want to shoot. You know, um, <laughs> you know I want to. Um, I would love to. I have a a where I'm in New Jersey now, which is a little bit of a trek from Manhattan. It's about an hour and a half, so I do have a home studio here. I would love to open up a studio where is a little more accessible to people in the city. Um, uh, plans for the future. I want to get into 
ultra large format. I do have an 11 by 14 uh, Deardorff studio camera. That's a beast. Um, and it's missing some parts. So I've slowly been rebuilding it. Um, the thing opens up six feet wide. It's, 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 it's massive. It's crazy. Right. It's, it's really an, an insane camera. Um, so yeah, I, I want to get into, you know, like I want to be able to shoot massive plates. Like I love my 14 tight headshot, you know, and, and, uh, eventually, you know, go even bigger than that. But, you know, yeah, just, just kind of <laughs> like keep it organic and just keep on going with it. You know, That's um, cool. I want to travel more, you know, just take it on the road. Um, mm. I have an assignment. I'm going to do uh, some mountain landscapes in Colorado uh, coming up in, when will we in April? May. I think in May I'll be doing something like that, you know. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then in part one, what, may, what motivates you then every day? Keep going. It's, um, well, at this point, I'm completely unemployable. <laughs> I have to take pictures. It's, 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 it's my one and only love as far as like, like it's, 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 it's basically who I am at this point in time. And I thought about that and I'm like, man, I have not worked. Like, I mean, like I haven't had a job since 2003. I'm like, what? I wouldn't even be able to get a job in a grocery store. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like who'd hire me? Like, I, <laughs> Wow. But yeah, what motives that, that that's not what motivates me, but like I just just love uh making images and and uh and handling the cameras and the equipment and and creating in general. So that's always been been my motivation. It's just just making pictures and making great work. Wow, that's cool. Um one of the pictures I recently saw, your digital work was Dave Navarro. Oh yes. And I just I said to my wife, I says, you do know Dave Barrow? She said, of course I do. And I was like, yeah, Justin shot him. And I was like, that's amazing. How, how did that happen? Uh, it was for a magazine. It was for a UK magazine, Classic Rock magazine. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it was Dave Navarro and uh, Eric Gales, who was a, a, an incredible blues musician. And um, they just had like a little bit of a, uh, a story on the two two guys. And they just sat down and had a, they interviewed each other and, um, right. and I just spent a couple of hours photographing them and was hired by the magazine, which I've been working for, for a number of years. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, that's a great opportunity. That for you, a bet as well. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So, uh, we've come to part of the show where, uh, I put you through my random questions. Okay. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> right, number one, nice easy one. You've just entered the afterlife. You get to, okay. to choose any animal and they will bond with you for eternity. Oh, easy. Well, groundhog. Groundhog? Groundhog, yeah. Yeah, yeah what, I love what groundhogs. Is, what is a groundhog? A groundhog, um, <laughs> it's a, a giant rodent that lives in the ground, uh, kind of similar to, well, all right, they could be called a groundhog, a whistle pig, uh, I don't have them a woodchuck. They look like a giant hamster oh, or right, kind okay. of like a beaver without the tail. Right. They're very cute animals. My my uh, son just had a birthday party. He just turned eight last two weeks ago, 
and we had an animal demo and they bought a groundhog and I lost my mind. <laughs> it was like the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. I just always love groundhogs. Either, either that or maybe a, a red-tailed hawk. I know they're two completely different animals, but yeah. Be your friends, right, okay. Yeah, I wanted the groundhog to be my friend, but it didn't want to be my friend at the, at the party. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah. Now it's cool. Uh, number two. When was the last lie you told? And when did you last compliment someone? Last lie? You know... Well, you are a dad, so... Yeah, I... I got to tell you, I've really, really been trying to self-correct and, and be as honest as I could. If... <laughs> If if I if I lied, it would have been like a uh, something probably based around a snack in the house that the kid wanted, and I probably said we don't have any more. That's probably <laughs> what my last my last lie would have been. Right. Uh, and last compliment, I tell my wife she's beautiful constantly, so it had to have been had to have been that fifteen times today because she's sick as a dog, and you know, yeah. but I mean she's still beautiful even though she feels like hell. No, that's so, nice. so yeah. you're a good husband as well. That's cool. I try. I try. <laughs> we all try, don't we? Um, yeah. What will come first? Excuse me. <clears throat> the digital Armageddon or the cataclysm of film cameras dying? Oh. Because we're not that far, surely, from film cameras being extinct at some point yeah i think then you think how stupid are we i think what will happen is i think still photography will die before hmm well i mean you know it's probably cameras are probably going to cease taking still pictures and just take videos and images will be what happens now images will be just pulled from from a video feed uh but uh, I guess I guess film would probably die because of, I mean I, as excited as as nice it is to see people shooting film, you know like um, the manufacturers have to be making enough money for it. Um, so I mean who who knows what's going to happen with it? Hopefully people I know it's on the rise. People, films coming back. Manufacturers are making more film, but they base they stop it seemed like it died. It almost died completely so suddenly very early in the digital age, you know? Um, yeah. You'll remember this. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, like I, I, I stopped shooting film and never looked back. I, I hmm. didn't give a shit about it. Um, <laughs> to this day, I mean, I'll be quite honest with you guys. I know you guys love shooting film, even though I'm like, neck deep in wet plate photography <laughs> even though uh, I, I do photography <laughs> yeah i don't i do not miss shooting film i miss the film cameras i've mm. ha i always form a uh i have emotional bonds with my film cameras and i never formed emotional bonds with digital cameras like i take my digital camera right now and throw it in the water yeah. you know but film cameras like i i ha i've had tons and tons of them and i regret selling a lot of them and there's a few that i'll never sell for the rest you know i always their family heirlooms like like i'm like this is something that that means so much to me like it, 
and and I'll shoot them like maybe I shoot maybe two or three rolls of film a year, and that's just basically because I want to use the camera. And I'm shooting film that's outdated from when I had it in my refrigerator from 15 years ago. <laughs> so like I'm not buying new film. I'm buying I have it in a, in a crate in the basement, you know. <laughs> um, but um. Again, I'm getting off track. Sorry, what would die first? I, I would probably, I have to say probably, uh, I guess, you know, like a film manufacturer will probably die off before digital photography, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But then again, I would never predicted that film would come back in the way that it did. Mm, digital could just die off and be replaced by something new. It's... Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, replaced by what? Uh, maybe eyes um we have um lenses in oh, mean, eyes oh well i mean still but i mean we'll be recording images with with yeah you know still be digital still be there. digital yeah yeah but i think the traditional camera will go yeah yeah i think um the phone started that movement anyway aren't it yeah yeah no i think the traditional the traditional camera i, th- I think we'll stop taking still images and and then have like you know a feed and then you just pull the images from the feed you know so you don't miss that moment which obviously cheapens the eye you know and the talent behind getting the decisive moment yeah you know but who knows what's going to happen that's cool that's a very open-ended question (laughs) (laughs) um if the uk was an apple as in it was an apple yep so it has many varieties to suit all tastes and budgets. What fruit would the USA be? Ugh. A disappointing peach. A disappointing peach. You know, when it's just like, oh, I like peaches, but ah, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That's all right. A disappointing peach. Yeah, it's just you know, it's not not you're not nearly as ripe. You know, it's just just hard and uh, yeah. It's fair enough. Uh, <clears throat> you're not selling the USA, are you? What's that? Selling the USA very well, are you? Ah, oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, the the current administration. You know, <laughs> the state of healthcare, and you know, I have kids, and you mm. know, and everyone in my house is sick, and it's like, oh, great! Now, how much is prescriptions going to cost? And it's just, it's just, yeah. You know, I mean, I love my country, but you know, it's just you kind of, you know, I love, you know, yeah, you, you, you. It's it's funny going going through life like. Yeah, yeah, you get different sense of pride at different time, you know. Yeah. Through the Obama years, yeah, you, you kind of felt more like patriotic. I'm, mean, you know, like like in like, you know, and it's just so good to be past the Bush years. And now it's like I wish we were in the Bush years again, you know. Like like it's almost well, like yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's you know. I think each yeah, one, I don't. I, well, each one's had a major disaster. Yeah, I know. Cope with, it's aren't like... It's funny because the last, uh, the only time I've been in New York was uh, Obama was just coming into power. That was the last time I was over in the USA. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was in New York. Uh, beautiful, loved it. Yeah, it was an exciting time. It was, it was wonderful. 
Yeah, can't wait to come back. Um, your, oh, yeah. Your last one. Right, here you go. So you get to have, um, I better say this right, a drink, uh-huh. present, or a punch with each of the following. Wait, one more time. A, a drink, a present? Yeah, or a punch. Like a, or a punch. So you've got Justin Timberlake, Justin Bieber, and Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister. Oh. Hmm. So you've got to choose one for each. Well, I mean, oh, one for each. All right, well, let's just leave the, the Bieber... You know, I, if I had to give him something, I would give him a punch, but I wouldn't. I mean, whatever. He's just a kid who, who makes music and, I guess, doesn't want to make music anymore. You know, whatever. I guess he would get a punch just because. I wouldn't want to have it. I wouldn't want to sit down with him. Uh, a present, meaning give a present Give a to? present. Yeah, a gift, yeah. A gift. Okay. Um, I would like to have a drink with, with uh, Justin Timberlake. I think he would be a cool dude to hang out with. Mm. And... Um, and I think I would, it would be nice to have a drink with the Prime Minister of uh, of uh, Canada as well. Yeah. I think I can quite agree with you on that one. Yeah, I don't think I would want to have a drink with Justin Bieber. I would definitely not enjoy that. Yeah. But again, you never, you never know. Maybe. Who knows? Could be cool. You know? Yeah. You could be okay. I mean, why not? Like... I don't need to give him a punch. I wouldn't want to give him a punch. Maybe I'll give him a present. Maybe I would give him a... Yeah, I'll give him a present. Let's give that kid a present. Why not? <laughs> Be kind. Why not? <laughs> um, At first, I thought I had to like give to choose. Like I, I couldn't give two of the same. I thought each each person had to get one of these three things, and how would I divide them up? That's yeah. what I was thinking. Like, okay, well, he'll get the punch because I don't want to have a beer with him, and you know, I never really. What am I going to give Justin Bieber that he doesn't have already? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he has to get the punch because I thought I had to give divide the three items up between the three people. Yeah, that in theory, but uh, it's open to interpretation, so I don't okay, mind. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Someone, someone was very clever and said. I'll give a punch, but it'll be a fist punch. So like a fist bump. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's quite a clever way. Yeah. Yeah. So he got he got out of it. Um, but I, I know they tell everyone on social media, oh, uh, Justin says he wants to punch uh, Obama or something. <laughs> Get it that way. So yeah, you got off easy there, I think. All right. All right. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> so thank you very much for uh, bearing with us. There. That was good fun. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. It's um, awesome talking with you. No, that's cool. What I normally do is give my guests um, time to tell us links to social media, websites, and I think in your case, um, where you're going to be in New York soon. So, do you want to tell sure. us? Sure. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, I I spend a lot of time in Soho on Prince Street, set up with my pop up studio. Uh, making tintypes so if you're coming through the new york area you could you could find me you know like on instagram um when i'm going to be out there you join my mailing list at baruki.com you also get notifications or you could actually 
pre-book uh, a, a time, like say if you know you're traveling in June and you're going to be in New York that weekend, you want to make sure I'm going to be there, you could pre-book the time. So then, you know, you pay me money. So actually I have to be there because, you know, I don't like always go out because, you know, I might be, you know, doing something else. So if you're yeah. traveling to New York and, and want us to, you know, make sure that we link up, you could do it that way. Um, yeah. Uh, that's cool. Um, where, what's your Instagram link? Uh, I'll put it in the show notes anyway, but if you want to tell people. Yeah, it's just my name, just, Justin Baruki, J-U-S-T-I-N-B-O-R-U-C-K-I. Okay, that, that's cool. Yep. Um, um, the final thing I always ask everyone, who would you like to see in a future show? Uh, is there anyone you would recommend? No, that would be uh, a good guest on here, someone maybe very different. Oh. Like a pay it forward sort of thing, I like to do. Sure, sure. Um, let's see, film, film people, obviously, right? Either way, um, I, I do do a lot of film, but I, I like to have digital. I sort of have models on here, publishers, mm -hmm. studio owners. I like to have a very good mix. All right, well, let me think about that for a moment. Um, about inventors as well, because they're quite cool. Inventors. Mm. I know one person that'd be awesome. The guy you learn everything from. Quinn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it'd be cool. I'll, I'll try I and could, reach uh, out at some point, but I could I could do an intro intro for you guys. Okay. Um Yeah, Quinn Quinn is a super awesome guy. He's he he's dedicated to education and and He's so inspiring. I, I love that man. He's very, very kind too. Cool. We never met in person. He's just, you know, always, you know, helpful with emails and questions. And there's wow. forums. There's several forums on Facebook that that there's these educators are also very uh, active on as well. Yeah. Um, um, all right, all right. Back to. Uh, yeah, I have a buddy uh, who who is also a rock and roll shooter. His name is Clay Patrick McBride. Mm -hmm. um, awesome guy, amazing photographer. Still shoots film. You know, he'll he'll show up to a shoot with fifteen film cameras and digital cameras, and they'll all be around his neck like a lunatic. And he's just like, <laughs> yeah, he's 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 incredible. Uh, he he does he does great work. Um, Sounds interesting. Yeah, I love that dude. Um, because I've never had a musical um, sort of photographer, so yeah, that'd be awesome, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely uh, send out an email and link you guys up. Um, yeah, cool, man. Mate, um, I can't thank you uh, enough for spending the time. I know it's took some time, and you, you know you've had things on and that. So I really do appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Thanks for uh, linking up and uh, making this happen. No, not a problem. I'll, I'll make sure we get this shared everywhere. Um, just give me a couple of days. It's Easter here, so... Yeah, yeah, um, here as well. Yeah, we're off with the family, <laughs> aren't we? Yeah. It's, it's nice yep. to have a couple of days off to ourselves. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I've got some uh, interesting projects I'm working on at the minute, so uh, I'm busy trying to sort these out. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Well, be before... Before we go, actually, um, I was to this morning thinking about podcast, and I, I actually had an idea or a little bit of oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, to, 
to to shoot to shoot some film, which I mentioned to you guys that that uh you know if I shoot film, it's usually ten year old outdated film that's in my in my basement somewhere. Hmm? Um, I I was thinking about a three hundred and sixty five project I I've done several years ago. Have you ever done a three sixty five project no, before? No, I've had a friend who's done it. God, that was hard. It's, it is. It's incredibly hard, and it's uh. Oh, anyway, 365 project. It was an incredibly um, challenging project because, like, just to come up with something every day, and it oh, really yeah. would teach you to um, sharpen your eye. It was it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, way to kind of just sharpen your eye and like just really see things in a better way. But I was just thinking of of maybe doing a 365 project with one single frame a day. So you have your film camera, just just one frame a day, but you have to make that one frame count. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can't shoot other things, but like like I'm just gonna have like this one camera, 36 exposures, 36 days, and and see how that works. And I don't know, just something that I might might try and see how that works. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, I, I'm always trying um, weird things out. Um, so my next project, um, only we one group know about this so far. Um, They've got a 72 exposure camera uh, with some um, er- experimental film, as I would call it. It's by the smallest film supplier in the world. He sponsored it, and we're going to send it around um, different photographers, hopefully in the UK. I might extend it to France because uh, it's going back to him for processing because no lab can process 72 exposures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm calling it Retro 72. And the idea is I'm sending a tape recorder as well with it. Um, we record on there, hi, my name's a vlogger, uh, um, what I'm doing. And then I tell the next person some ideas to shoot for the next few shots. So that's my next project. Oh, I just pass it around. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 So that's one project. Yeah. Um, I've got another project going at the minute, which is called the Secret Project. Um uh, that's a worldwide one. Uh, so my camera is just left the States. Uh, it's coming here. Uh, it's going around different photographers. No one knows who's involved at any stage. Um, they don't know what they've got to do other than they only get three shots. Um, and they don't know what they're doing until they open a box. In the box is instructions how to go to a website. And then I've done a mm-hmm. little video. And they have to watch the video to learn what to do. Uh, so it's been really, really cool until it left the States. It went uh, it went into Europe. It didn't get picked up. It went back to America. Um, it's costing my friend too much money in postage. So I said, look, just take the film out, send me the film. So he sent me that. And today I've had a letter off the tax office here saying I've got to pay the equivalent of $50 to collect it. And I'm like, no, no, I haven't got fifty dollars. So um, when it comes, if you if you refuse it, if you refuse it, when it comes back, you have to put on the customs form that it's not worth money. If it has to, be, yeah. whatever's on the customs form, that's oh, right. It's a camera, so it's worth two hundred dollars. Then you have to pay taxes on it. So if you say it's only worth ten dollars, then you won't pay taxes on it when it comes to you. Yeah, and that's what I think. That's what's happened. Yeah, uh, on the thing, it's 
said $100, so I've got to pay all yeah. that money. So yeah, like, that's exactly oh, what it is. No, that's no good. So, yeah. All right, man, listen, i got to yeah. skedat, skedat. No, of course. Thank you right, so man. much, Justin. Have a great it was day. Wonderful. Yeah, um, man, you too now. You take care, dude. And uh, let's touch, touch base, and I'll get you the links that you need and, and all that fun stuff, all right? Yeah, smashing you get going. <laughs> Thank all you, right. buddy. Thank you, man. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that's the end of another show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed making it. It's always great to have a guest on with me. Um, Please do share the post and podcast show as much as you can where relevant. Um, If you have time, please do not forget to review this on iTunes. Uh, Just hit the review button and give it five stars, please. It's always helpful. Uh, It's motivation for me to keep the show going and I want to keep this going for as long as possible and basically I'd like to get lots of lots of different and interesting people on here so that's what I'm trying to do thank you again and see you next time bye